Return to Dallas by Robert P. Fitton. Return to Dallas, Chapter 14, Galveston Island, July 27, 1963, 7.15 p.m. On a desolate stretch of beach, shorebirds soared above the silver-churning waves, disappearing into the milky sand. This day had warmed nicely under a panoply of billowing clouds hovering high over the isolated beach. Hatch aimed a long amplifier tube 50 yards down the beach at Sherry next to the blanket. Say something! He adjusted the headphones, but when he lifted the left pad, he barely heard her voice. The top piece was detached from the rest of the amplifier. Hatch snapped the piece back in place. After a slight buzz, the sound of the breakers, as well as the wind, filled the headphones. Say something! Patch, you make me crazy. You know what I mean. He slowly smiled and trotted up the beach sand. She stood with her hand on her hips, sipping a Coke in her denim cutoffs. Her legs were taut and her auburn hair ruffled in the breeze. The sun glistened on her white teeth. With a strange grin, Patch looked her over. Amplifier still not working? she asked. Hatch set the amplifier and headphones in the case. Her smooth face was heightened by soothing sunshine. He placed his fingers on her cheeks. I heard every word you said. And he took her hand and guided her to the blanket. The waves nudged slowly toward the shore while the sunlight split the towering clouds. He kissed her softly and then crazily. Soon they were naked on the blanket, making love over and over as the sun slowly trekked toward the steely horizon. Late in the afternoon, they sat with the blanket wrapped around their naked bodies. She nestled her head on his shoulder. See, Patch, there are certain things you can't forget. I guess not. He kissed her again. Look at the clouds, Patch. If you really look to the top, the swirling gases. They're changing, said Patch. Never the same. We had an English teacher who was forever reciting that part of Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam. You know it? I don't. Listen carefully, Patch, she said, gazing into his eyes as she cupped his face in her hands. There rolls the deep where grew the tree. O earth, what changes hast thou seen? There, where the long street roars, hath been the stillness of the central sea. The hills are shadows, and they flow from form to form, and nothing stands. They melt like mist, the solid lands. Like clouds, they shape themselves and go. Sounds like life, said Patch. That's it. Everything changes like the clouds. Galveston Island, Texas, August 1st, 1963, 4.40 p.m. On their last day on Galveston Island, Sherry lay on the blanket reading a James Bond book as Patch sipped on his coffee. Didn't you already read Dr. No? 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 I thought, she smiled, I mean yes. No. She set down the paperback and Patch hovered over her as if he were going to do a push-up. He peered into her rich brown eyes as she smiled. I wonder what would happen if we didn't show up tomorrow morning in New Orleans. Patch rolled over in the sand and made a palms-up gesture with his hands. Whoa, whoa, Mr. Vaselli would then make a phone call. Need I say any more? Sherry sat up. I figure this will last a few weeks at most, Patchy. 
I want you to come back and see Spokane with me when we're done. I mean more than the milk bottle. What about Ricky Blaze? She hesitated. He's gone, and he ain't coming back. What are you going to do? Straighten out my life? Have somebody pull a few strings to maybe substitute teach? Nope. What do you mean, nope? She asked with her hands on her hips. You can't sit still. You read those Bond books, you want adventure and excitement. She looped her arms around his neck. Well, I guess I came to the right place. Here we are, said Patch, on the edge of the mob, government agents, and the military. He looked out over the breakers. How difficult can it be to watch some guy and take pictures? Oh, the word is dangerous, not difficult. Or they wouldn't be forking over the cash, said Patch. Exactly. She held Patch's shoulders. Ever been to New Orleans? Nope. All I know about New Orleans is Mardi Gras and jazz. Patch pretended to be playing the piano. And don't forget Fats Domino. He spread out with her again on the blanket and looked up at the moving high clouds again. There go the changing clouds. She held his hand. So many things out of our control. I wish I could remember, he said, still looking skyward at the reforming clouds. You will. I need to get to a doctor when this is over and unlock my head. And what about Sanchez? What if his buddies know I'm around? They won't know about us if we stay in the background. And we should be able to. I had the limo dream again last night. Dark car heading into trouble across the prairie. And then troops, all young men, marching into the jungle. The jungle? That's weird. Or weirder. She held him. Must mean something, Patch. It has to. Creepy. Patch smiled and had her juicy fruit pack in his hand. Gum? Don't mind if I do, she said, taking out a foiled wrap piece. How long's the drive to New Orleans? I haven't even checked. About six hours, said Patch. If we leave early, we can be at the post office by 11 a.m. He shook his head. What's the matter? I have that feeling again. Like when I'm in that repeating dream, Sherry. Impending doom. Return to Dallas, Chapter 15. Lafayette Square, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday morning, August 2nd, 1963, 10.57 a.m. On Friday morning, before they left, just after dawn, Patch again familiarized himself with the linear black sound amplifier that connected the amp and the little tape recorder. All the Ansco chrome color slides they had taken in Galveston were segregated from the New York mailing. He placed a red and yellow 35mm canister into its aluminum case. By mid-morning in New Orleans, Sherry had parked the Impala near the post office adjacent to a city park. The map designated the post office as the massive stone building across the busy street. They rounded a garden display and stepped toward the columns under a huge flapping American flag. With tremendous trepidation, he climbed with her up the stone stairs. Then he pulled open the heavy doors. The voluminous federal building smelled of ink and varnish oak. Wide, grainy brown floor panels were glossed to a spit shine. The brass rim post office boxes formed a wall straight ahead and to the right of the counter. Each box had a tiny window with gold and black stenciled shadowed numbers. The dark-numbered wall clock neared 11 a.m. As they passed the oak tables and wide windows, a man with scruffy eyebrows and a brown touring cap rounded the corner. He wore white pants as if he worked in a fast food restaurant. 
grabbed Patches up around with a sense of recognition. He spoke in a low, baritone voice. Patch Kincaid, you're alive. I'm Lemon, who are you? Right, right, your cover, very good. He extended his hand to Sherry, and then he turned to Patch. I'm, well, you know me as Harold Easley, for Christ's sake, a.k.a. David Ferry. You know him, Patch? asked Sherry. Know him? He placed his hand to the side of his mouth and lowered his voice. I flew him into Cuba during the Bay of Pigs ahead of the invasion. But now I'm supposed to refer to him as Mr. Lemon. <laughs> Sherry raised her brows as Ferry handed Patch a tiny brass key. P.O. Box 300543, said Patch, studying the etched numbers. We all have our required duties. I know nothing except I'm giving you the key, Patch. Thanks, Harold, uh, David. Ferry nodded. He took two steps toward the outside doors and then abruptly spun around. You know, they all swore to God that you were executed in Cuba after the invasion. God love you, Patch. You fooled them all. With his words, Ferry marched across the door panels. Who the hell is he? asked Patch. Sherry shrugged her shoulders and made a smiley face as she raised her brows again. Ferry exited outside and the doors closed behind him. Patch saw him look left and then right down the street. Another piece of your big puzzle, Patch. Weren't there government intelligence agencies involved in the Bay of Pigs? Yep. She nodded and followed the numbered brass boxes down the wall. Then she gestured with her open hand. 300543. Patch, still confused about Ferry flying into Cuba, backed up to the box and inserted the brass key. He opened the tiny door and pulled out a single crisp manila envelope with a typewritten white label, lemon and lime. That's us, said Sherry. He tore open the envelope with his index finger. Ten $100 bills with Benjamin Franklin again staring at him lay flat on a sheet of heavyweight yellow paper. The instructions were simple. Mitaladio del Valle, La Petite Fleur, 9 p.m., August 2nd, 1963. What's this all about? And who's this guy de Valle? Could be anyone. Patch fanned the bills. I don't like the way this is going. She held the money and grinned. Well, it's not that bad. A lot of cash. He shook his head. This is strange. You are a threat to the intelligence people. Rosselli said not to go near the intelligence guys, and now here's this fairy character saying he personally flew you into Cuba during the Bay of Pigs fighting two years ago. Patch locked the box. He mumbled as he placed the key under the plastic picture holder in his wallet. I don't remember a damn thing about it. I can't let them know I don't know anything. I have to go through with this. These people play for keeps. La Petite Fleur, 675 Canal Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday night, August 2nd, 1963, 9 p.m. Patch turned up the radio as he drove under the electric rail car lines. On the international stage, Kim Philby. It's a double agent, according to Investia in Radio Moscow. At the beginning of July, Britain confessed Philby was the third man in the Burgess and McLean Soviet spy ring. Where's James Bond when you need him, asked Patch. Bond would have found Philby out years ago. The People's Daily, the People's Republic of China, condemned the Soviet Union as being freaks and monsters for allowing unconditional concessions and capitulation to the imperialists. 
the Red Chinese. And we're, of course, talking about the partial nuclear test ban treaty with the United States and the United Kingdom. I knew that treaty would cause problems, she said. He checked all the little shops and cafes as he searched for Le Petit Fleur. What about Kennedy? I'm sure the power makers don't like the fact that we're in bed with the Russians. Beware, New Orleans. Hurricane Arlene is off the coast of Bermuda with an uncertain trajectory. WNOE will keep you advised. And now back to Ron Bracken and the Tops and Pops here on WNOI. The next song blasted like a car racing from a dead stop. Patch swung the Impala gingerly to the curb around a hundred feet from the corner cafe called La Petite Fleur. A red and green neon flower spread over a thin wooden door that constantly opened and closed. Sherry spoke the words whispered at the beginning of the song. Wipe out? Well, I hope we don't get wiped out. They're talking about a surfer, Patch. Sometime we'll dance to it. I saw an amusement park by the beach. He nodded, but his face was serious as he stared across the street. Let's go find Diwali. Patch leaned toward her. Nervous? Yes. They slid outside and he locked all the doors. Music from the bar trickled up the sidewalk. A single window had vertical iron bars. The mixture of jazz grew louder and the conglomeration of smoke escaped onto the sidewalk every time the door opened. She hung on his side as he approached the door. It burst open and a little guy in a t-shirt rumbled onto the sidewalk. Inside a gyrating dock man fanned a golden saxophone in the haze. Patrons dotted around the bar and tables like billiard balls on an uneven table. The air was warm and stuffy. Patch led her up to the chubby little man with the red nose behind the bar. I'm looking for Eladio Diwali. The man mixed some gin with tonic water and sneered at Patch. So what? Is he here? Who the hell knows? I don't know who he is. Can you ask somebody? I'm busy. Continue to mix the drink. Let's see, this is going to be fun, said Patch as they sidestepped down the bar. He asked the other bartenders about Diwali. She spoke over the saxophone's blare. I think we've been had. I know we're dealing with a tight organization. I can't believe that P.O. box message will get messed up. From a booth next to a faded green restroom door, a man with a high forehead and large brown eyes waved him over with his fingers. The little man stood and shook Patch's hand. He shouted over the saxophone. Eladio, vale. Lemon. Lime. Hey, sit down. Thank you so much for meeting with me tonight. Patch slid into the booth with Sherry and faced the open call at Diwali. My instruction is to buy local cattle for you. You are a Cuban? He produced a wide and sustained smile. Then he lit a tipperillo and shook out the match on the old table. Yes, I fled in 1959. I've been back to Cuba with my men last year. Castro and his regime are evil. I feel these things deeply. Now Kennedy has stopped the raids. Have we met before? No. Has your contact met me? No comment. He wrote down a number in blue ink on a white napkin. This is a number you will call me. Contact me immediately. Just ask for Vito. Thank you. What it's worth, my friend. I have no idea what your instructions are. I am only here to protect you. He looked toward the door and around the bar. One more thing. What's that? I was told to tell you that Carlos Sanchez's friends must never know you are alive. They will make sure. Where are his friends? They are in Havana. 
They will want you dead if they know you're alive. That is the word. Why? He laughed. Jesus! It's because of you Carlos was shot dead. He stood like a soldier and grasped Patch's hand. I hope, my friend, you do not have to call Vito. Patch leaned toward her as Diwali pushed open the Canal Street door and then he was gone. This is becoming way too dangerous. A gray-haired man in a white shirt kicked open the front door. The guy's hair was pushed back and messy. His eyes were intense as he walked along the bar. He spoke to no one. Then he extended his hand. Good to see you again, Patch. I have a message for you. A large pearl-handled handgun was stuffed into a side holster. How do you know my name? Got the innocent routine. I ain't got time for it. The message is, proceed according to plan. Yeah, right. Hey, don't be a wise ass. I don't like bullshit. You got that? I'll whip your ass. Okay. I want you to get a nice hotel downtown. I suggest the shower, he said, placing five $100 bills in Patch's hand. Call your contact and get him a phone number. Very good things about you since I last saw you. How did we meet? He flipped an orange card to Patch. Cut the shit, Patch. You're a private investigator. You know that, Patch. Don't call me unless you're cornered. As far as you're concerned, I was never here tonight. Not tonight, not tomorrow, never. Understood. One more thing. I was told by a little birdie that you should take a walk down Decatur Street to the Havana Bar before you go to the hotel. Lee Oswald might be in there. You didn't hear this from me. Okay. Good luck. He looked at Sherry. Ma'am, Mr. Bannister. Bannister exited the same way he had come into the bar. I honestly don't remember that man. He remembers you. Maybe Cuban intelligence took away your memories. Patch threw back his head and laughed. You're asking me? At the end of the street, a blue 1959 Chevy pulled away from the curb ahead. That's the car in Austin, shouted Patch. Buck, the bird watcher. Joke, Sherry. Obviously, Buck is working for somebody, she said. We need to have someone trace that plate and find out who this guy is. He raised up his wristwatch. It was 12.35 a.m. The early morning stillness was broken by loud talk and music from the bars ahead. He walked with his arm around Sherry down Decatur Street. People clutched chairs and each other in the low light. The bar on his left was called the Havana Bar. Obviously the bird watcher is working for somebody, she said. Why, because of the number on his binoculars? Sherry nodded as a tall black woman in a white dress, reeking of booze and an overpowering cheap perfume, staggered out and threw her arms around a man smoking a cigarette. The guy ripped her arms away. Get lost! She blew a kiss to him in the doorway and then started down the street. Patch thought he saw Oswald inside at one of the tables. He checked his wallet. Sherry looked at the photo they had received in Austin. Oswald. They edged inside the doorway. Oswald sat next to a slightly older Cuban in a sleeveless blue sweater. The Cuban's well-formed biceps bulged in his short-sleeved shirt. He ordered a tequila in Spanish. Oswald quickly drank the tequila when it arrived. Man keeps late hours. With Cubans? Doesn't look like a loner, but he sure looks ill from that drink. Patch held her inside the open door. Somebody brought Oswald the lemonade. Once he finished the lemonade, the group stood at the table. 
Patch steered back to the street. He quickly backtracked to the Impala with Sherry before Oswald and his friends came outside. They're shelling out thousands to watch a guy who spends his time drinking lemonade and tequila after midnight. This should prove real interesting. Patch's stomach jolted when he saw four men in the shadows of an alcove about 50 feet away. Don't turn, there's four guys watching us ahead. A bull-necked man with a sloping forehead, pinpoint eyes, and a buzz haircut stood ahead of the others. They all wore sports shirts and chino pants. See a white station wagon? She asked. No, but that big guy has arms like bridge supports. Have you seen them before, Patch? She asked, looking inside the Havana bar. I've never seen them, but they're definitely watching us. Let's scoot into the bar. I hope there's a back door. Patch squeezed her hand and stepped into the chattering conversation inside the bar. Quickly, they navigated around the patrons and out the rear door. Once in the side street, they began running. They knew we'd be here. Bannister knew we'd be here. Has he set us up? She asked. No. Maybe the people he works for, or who work for him. He guided her forward. Back to the hotel. If there's trouble, I'll call Rosselli. Complete audiobook of Return to Dallas is available at audible.com.